I'm Cyrus Hira. And I'm Shazad Mirza. We believe in bringing people together. Throughout our personal and professional lives, we've had the privilege of meeting incredible people. These are people who have inspired us and allowed us to share their stories with the world. This show is our attempt to prove that great things are possible with one secret ingredient. This is the art of conviction. Welcome, everybody. Our guest today has co-authored more than 40 software patents. He's participated in the development of several internet standards and worked in internet governments with the Internet Society. Russ White has a background covering a broad spectrum of topics, including radio frequency engineering, graphic design. He's also an active student of philosophy and culture. And in fact, he recently completed a PhD in philosophy. Russ, what an amazing life you've had. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> We're really excited I, uh, to no, talk to you. I'm, I'm kind of like, is that really me? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Russ, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, maybe you can tell our audience, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. So I currently am an infrastructure architect at one of the vendors. I work on data center fabrics, open source, open standards type stuff. Uh, largely as my day job. On the backside of the day job, I am largely a student of philosophy, looking at the intersection between technology and culture and trying to understand that a little bit better and uh, actually doing some privacy advocacy and thinking about moving a bit more into privacy and security in the future. Okay, very interesting. So Russ, what specifically led you to that industry? If you could talk maybe a little bit about your educational background, did you have, were you interested in that all along, maybe since you were younger, or is it something you kind of fell into? Um, actually, I fell into it. So I began when I was a kid doing electronics, primarily amateur radio. I have an amateur radio license and uh, doing electronic repair type stuff. But I was also deeply interested in art. I was actually an art major in college for a bit. And in music, I was actually a voice major in college for a little bit. And so I did illustration and art for a living for a couple of years. But it just wasn't working out. So I ended up falling back on my electronics and going into the United States Air Force, where I worked on airfield electronics, which are kind of interesting. I worked on radar systems, radio systems, instrument landing systems, things like that. Very high voltage, very dangerous um, out on the airfield, I have lots of airfield stories I can tell about people who have nearly died on the airfield <laughs> wow. who are friends of mine. It's kind of weird. Um, I was deployed once into a hot zone and uh, have a little bit of experience on that side of life as well. Mm -hmm. But when I was in the Air Force, one thing that kind of caught my eye was that there was this new field of network engineering, of computer networking, that was really starting to take off. And... What I was currently doing at the time, electronic engineering, as an example, the VOR and the TACAN were replaced essentially piece by piece with solid state electronics. And so rather than troubleshooting tubes and doing lots of cool things around actual deep electronics work, I was ending up just sitting in a computer terminal typing in, tell me what's wrong with you, essentially. So for, for people who might not know, what, what would a VOR be? Okay. A VOR is a, is a system that allows airplanes to locate themselves on a map. Gotcha. You can take two VORs and if you, it basically gives you, if you know the location of the VOR, it basically gives you your degrees off of north away from the VOR. So you can take two of these and you can triangulate where you are on a map okay. dynamically. So um, this is all for aircraft flying and tack in 
It's similar, but it gives you distance as well. It's primarily used for military application. And then instrument landing systems tell you, when you're in, landing an airplane, they tell you where the center line of the runway is and where the glide slip is. So you can come in blind without having to be able to see the airfield itself. You can actually come at, like ride the radio, radio waves down to the actual runway um, to within... A hundred feet or so of touching down and actually putting your putting your wheels down on the on the tarmac. So all that kind of stuff. So I, I was getting kind of like, okay, is this really going to be interesting in the future? And what else can I do? So I stumbled into Banyan Vines and Novell Netware and earned my CNE. And I taught myself to program C programming language and XBase and Smalltalk, um, and had a little bit of experience with Fortran and COBOL along the side, but mostly C and, and XBase and Smalltalk. And so from there, I moved into Small Computer Support Center in the U.S. Air Force, and I started working on tech control, which is all around telephone switches and encrypted information and working around computer networks, installing the new backbone at the Air Force Base and stuff like that, optical backbone and stuff like that at the Air Force Base. So... When I decided to leave the Air Force, I decided to take up a career in computer networking. And that led me to work for a couple of companies, a couple of smaller companies, and then BASF and Advanced Technology. And then I moved to Raleigh and went to work for Cisco Systems in the Technical Assistance Center, the TAC, just taking cases. And so that's kind of how I got into networking. I didn't, I did my degrees in networking, network architecture and design after I was in networking for five or 10 years something like that. So the degrees were almost an afterthought. Right. So, so this was a great way for you to flex both your creative and your technical uh, interests? Yeah, I think so. And that's what I think was attractive to me is when I first got into networking, it was a black art. Right. And so, yeah, it was a lot more fun than doing electronics where everything was pretty much laid out for you. Yeah. Well, and, a lot has changed um, over the years, obviously, in networking. And, you know, you've We'll talk a little bit about your podcast as well. You, you've got a couple of podcasts that you host. Um, d describe sort of the the industry today and uh, someone like yourself who's kind of been there from the very beginning. Um, what what sorts of significant changes have you seen uh, in the industry over the last little while? Well, we've moved a lot more from hardware into software. Mm -hmm. I was when I first got into network engineering, it was largely about optics. Uh, the software pieces were all around network operating systems, as we called them at the time, which were Vines, Windows NT, OS, OS2, and other things like that. But now we don't really deal as much with the hardware side of things. The hardware is largely plug and play. Now, the hardware guys will disagree with me on that because they're still working hard at making it plug and play. Mm -hmm. But from a design and architecture perspective, the hardware is almost commodified, and now every all the value is in software and intersecting with the business. So that's been a massive change. Fortunately, I've since I know how to code, I've been kind of well-positioned to take advantage of right. both the hardware and the software side and, sh and shift with the field as it goes. Right. So I, that's was my other question, is that there's got to be a knowledge gap um, because of that in the industry. And I'm sure that a lot of people are who want to remain relevant are probably hustling to, to really grasp um, programming concepts so that they can, you know, continue their yeah. careers yeah well it's interesting because i almost think we always do it we always go about it the wrong way um <laughs> it's gonna sound really strange but most people who are trying to learn coding in network engineering right now are not trying to learn coding as a coder might 
They're trying to learn it more as a scripting type of thing so that they can continue doing what they've always done from a different interface. So that would be configuring and operating, basically. Right. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And I'm not sure how far that's going to take people in the long run mm -hmm. without actually learning the fundamentals of how to code. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of one of my one of my windmills that I tilt at is learn the fundamentals, learn how to code, learn learn the real stuff and the the user interfaces and stuff like that, they'll take care of themselves. You need to focus on how things actually work. Right. I think you can apply that to any industry, really. I mean, if you've got the fundamentals, the tools are just the tools at the end of the day, right? Yeah, that's right. So, Russ, we, we just talked a little bit about your education background, some of your interests, as well as, you know, the industry that you're in. Thinking about the people that inspired you or motivated you, um, can you think of a few mentors throughout your timeline? Oh, goodness, certainly. There's been tons and tons and tons uh, throughout the years. Um, I had a vice president, Gerard, uh, at BASF, who was very inspirational to me. There were people and just taught me to deal with people better and taught me to deal with bad situations better than I was doing at the time. Uh, my, my childhood was not the happiest of childhoods, so I had developed some very bad habits around interacting with people up to that point. Um, even in the Air Force, there was TJ, who was a master sergeant, who was very helpful in helping me to think back to the fundamentals and to understand the fundamentals better. And then once I get into the networking world, yeah, there are definite people, Don Slice, Alvaro Otana, who drug me into things and helped me understand the fundamentals better and to think correctly or to think cleanly about what things were going on. Of course, I have that background habitualness, that habitual thinking pattern of being medica native and, and trying to focus on the fundamentals. But when I got into networking, those fundamentals didn't exist. I mean, to give you a story about this, when I right. first worked, started working at Cisco, one of the things that when I walked through the door and I was working in the technical assistance center was they said, well, you're coming into the routing protocols team and all we deal is routing protocols. Well, here's a protocol called EIGRP, and there's literally no documentation on how this protocol works. There's some documentation on how to configure it, but there's no documentation on how this protocol works. Since you know C, why don't you go into the source code and actually figure out how this protocol works and write some stuff on that so that we who are supporting this and our customers can actually understand what the right thing to do is. So Don Slice and I spent a lot of time going through the code in very deep detail and using GDP to set breakpoints and look at how things work and then using packet sniffers and stuff like that. And I think that taught me that you really have to go underneath. You have to understand uh, exactly how things work rather than just knowing how to configure them. So there were some experiences in that area. Now, later or more recently, I would say that I've had a couple of mentors in my life, Dr. Doug Bookman and um, Dr. Bruce Little, who have helped me to transition or to broaden, not really transition, but to broaden my scope out to other areas that are very interesting and to think about how technology intersects with culture, which is a completely different realm. Um, but they've, they've been kind of dragging me along to learn those things. So it's different people at different times in life. Right. And have you had the opportunity, Russ, to, to mentor other people in the industry, you know, students or younger people that are just decided to go into that field? So I have done some of that. I don't know how much I've done of that because I don't really keep record and I never really do it formally mm -hmm. a lot of times. 
But when I was managing the session group at Cisco Live for routing and switching, I was dragging in these speakers on a regular basis and mentoring them in how to speak, mm-hmm. bringing them up to speed. Denise Fishburne is an example. And other people that I have drug into speaking and said, you know, you really need to be public. You need to speak. Uh, I always co-author books. And it's not so much necessarily that I couldn't write the book on my own all the time. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes I can. But even if I feel like I could, I often co-author books in order to pull somebody in who wants to learn the authoring business mm-hmm. and learn how to write a book. What what does it take self-discipline-wise? What does it take from a process? What does the process look like? And also to get their name in front of people. Uh, once I wrote one or two books, I kind of had my own platform where I could talk to people and they would listen. So now I can drag other people onto that platform and help them become known by co-authoring with them to some degree. And so uh, this is this is some of the things. So there have been times, but I don't tend to be very formal about it. I tend to be much more informal and just say, oh, this is what you want to do. If you get, come to me with a goal, then I'll help you with that goal. Um, not Not a broad range of like, just mentor me to become an architect or something like that. Just sure, more, sure. I have this specific goal I'd like to do. So Russ, your podcast, it's quite technical, but it, it, not, it isn't always technical. And a lot of the time you address certain topics uh, that involve soft skills or interactions with people, management, professional development. Are there particular values and ethics that you find are really important nowadays in, in the tech field? Um, especially because as technical people, a lot of the time we're, you know, we're in front of a screen. We don't interact with people the same way other, uh, other industries or other roles might do, like a, a sales role or something like that. What do you think is important today for people in technology to just keep in mind as far as having a, a solid understanding of the human element of, of working in that industry? Yeah, so that's very interesting, and it may drive us a little bit into philosophy. Right, I, far, I was hoping it would. Philosophy. I don't know how into philosophy you want to go. <laughs> but so philosophically, if you go back to Aristotle and you look at the virtue ethic, I'm a strong believer in the concept of the virtue ethic. Now, religiously, I'm a Christian, um, a very conservative Christian, but we, you know, even within within the Christian or within the theological world in which I live, philosophers are almost kind of an off-to-the-side thing, mm-hmm. and the philosophy pieces of it are often ignored. And so what I run into, or what I, what I tend to do is I tend to fall back into a virtue ethic, which is along the lines of you, you become what you practice. You become what you what you what you actually do on a daily basis, and what you say on a daily basis. Um, C.S. Lewis might say it as, "You become what you worship." And so, you think about this in terms of technology. And quite often, I think people go into technology because they want to avoid being with people. In fact, there was a a great cartoon once where there was a guy talking to somebody across the table. I think it was a woman or something, and mm-hmm. the woman said to him, "I think you need to develop your soft skills." And he said. Soft skills. I went into computers so I wouldn't have to deal with people. Um, so that's that's kind of, that's kind of the way we tend to think of it, right? But I don't think you can be effective as a technologist without being able to explain what you're doing and why. And I don't think you can be an effective technologist if you can't deal with people at a very personal, understanding level. Um, I I meet people all the time who say. I took my my computer in for tech support and they just were really nasty to me. Mm. And 
I, that's just not, that's not a good, I think we have way too much arrogance and I'm really against the whole concept of arrogance and uh, try to be, I think humility is mm-hmm. a very important thing. So I would say that for me, a lot of this comes down to virtue ethic, practicing, being kind to people, practicing, caring about people, listening, even sometimes when I don't feel like it and just trying to be present in the moment with that person that I'm talking to. And I think that ethic comes from, again, you know, I would take it back to theological roots in the Imago Dei and stuff like that and thinking about the value of the person as a person, which, by the way, drives my pursuit of concern about privacy and about what social media is doing to us as people and things like that, because that's mm-hmm. that my concern about the person as a person is driving that entire part of my world as well. Uh, so right. I think that's developed over time, but I think it's coming out more recently than it has in the past. Right, which is a great segue into your path to the doctorate in philosophy that you recently obtained. So congratulations on that. Uh, what, a, what an awesome achievement. Now, just based on what I understand about your, the study uh, specifically for that degree, you're looking at the impact of technology on epistemology uh, virtue and ethics, like we just discussed, and community, and the, it's the intersection between technology and culture. Why specifically that? I'm curious. Um, I mean, you've explained quite a bit here about um, your, sort of your religious background, but um, is this a gap that you found that needed to be filled from a philosophical standpoint that wasn't really addressed as much over the years, or is it just something that you were passionate about? So I think it's a little bit of both. I think I started becoming passionate about privacy, but then I had to back into it and say, why do I care? What, what is it about privacy that's important? Um, I joined the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the Media Ecology Association, and I started reading some of the documentation around that. And then I started reading studies about what social media is doing to us culturally and individually. And a lot of the books that I read and a lot of studies I read are very, very good at understanding the problem in terms of this is the impact we're seeing in real life what I see very little of, is why is this so? Why does this cause that? Because we can all say, let's just dump social media. Let's just stop using it. But that's not necessarily very helpful in the perspective that we want to take the good out of what social media is without the bad. But to get to the good without the bad, we have to understand why the bad is there. What is, the, what is it that makes it bad? And how can I try to counteract that to some degree? So in your opinion, what is it that's bad? Um, what's bad is, is that it is what I call flattening. Mm. It flattens people. It, it, it reduces the person from being a multidimensional end to a being a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And so I think that because this is what some researchers have called anonymous environment, it's not anonymous because it's not truly anonymous. Like you're not totally unknown. What happens in the virtual world tends to bleed into the real world and your habitual thinking of other people as an audience or as a like or as a whatever bleeds into the real world. We start treating people that way in the real world because we treat them that way in the virtual world. And so this flattening effect or this dehumanizing effect spreads out. And I think it's part of the reason for the toxic nature of our current discourse. Mm-hmm. And it just feeds into a lot of different things. I'm curious, Russ, so based on your research, the points you bring up are, they're very interesting and they're, they are concerning. So the question would then be, I mean, these, these things, just, they don't just fall out of the sky, 
right? These ideas and, and these ideologies. How did we even get to that point? What are sort of the underlying ideas behind why we're, we're there today? I mean, without, I mean, sorry to anybody who doesn't like philosophy, but um, both, <laughs> Sh- both Shazad and I love it. And, um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to go down any rabbit holes here, but I think it's just under, important to understand why we think the way we think, right? Um, yeah, sure. So sure. I, I'd love it if you could maybe shine some light on that, Russ. Yeah, sure. Sure. So um, I'm going to come from a very religious, theological, philo- philosophical perspective That's or okay. vision of reality, cool. right? So I'm just warning the listen. You know, <laughs> people who are listening to this up front that <laughs> uh, you know that's going to be my perspective. And so I think there are two pieces. I think there are commercial interests that drive the flattening, because by treating people as a means to an end, I can make money, mm-hmm. and this is always been true, but I think it's become more true with the tools that we have at our disposal. And not only to make money, but to reshape society in ways that we consider good. Um, There's always something about good intentions versus good effects in the real world. And we seem to have gotten to the point where we believe that if you have good intentions, I don't really care what what the effect is. All I have to do is look at your intentions and that's what I care about. And it's that really doesn't work in the real world. You, you have to have good intentions and mm. good execution. Um, a right thing done the wrong way can still end up doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. in the end right. um, through, through side effects. So I think, but the commercial drive and the desire to help people, the rather altruistic desire to improve culture intersects with a vision of reality or a vision of the person that, that, that each person does not have intrinsic value. They only have extrinsic value. They only have value within a community. They only have value to a community. They never have value of themselves. Uh, and I think we're seeing this come out in a lot of the things that we're starting to run into where people are being grouped based on the color of their skin, their religion, whatever it is, and saying, well, this group has to be at war against that group. And that just makes you only valuable as you live within that group, kind of. And so that's a flattening effect itself. So I think there's a philosophical background here that's grounded in a naturalistic, reductionistic view of the person, combined with a desire to do good, combined with a profit motive. And that is kind of a witch's brew. It's kind of a toxic brew of things that produce this kind of, what can I do to control people better to get all of these things to happen while my worldview and my vision of reality is giving me permission to actually do that work at the same time. So it's not a one, it's, it's a multiple prong problem or environment. Okay. Um, I'm curious about the actual process of obtaining the doctorate as well. It's a huge endeavor, obviously, especially when you try to do something like that and you've got a day job and you've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Could you talk to us a little bit about the path, maybe some challenges that you came up against? What did you like? What did you dislike about it? Yeah, sure. So I actually was in an MDiv program, which a lot of listeners aren't going to know what that is, but it's a double master's. And I decided that I was going to drop off and do a master's instead of double master's and do a PhD instead. Um, This is largely because I think my target is to teach and to explain rather than to pastor or to counsel or whatever the case might happen to be. Mm -hmm. So when I went into this, though, I was told up front that I did not have the theological or philosophical background to make it even make it into a PhD in philosophy at all. 
So I was rejected out of hand by one program, which later actually accepted me. And then I went to see Dr. Little on a whim, got some time on his calendar at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I sat down with him for what was supposed to be a half an hour meeting, turned into an hour and a half meeting. And his thinking was, there are very few people with my level of technical skill and thinking skill who would come into a PhD of philosophy program. And he believed I could learn the philosophy. And it was extremely philosophy heavy. My oral and written comps were on the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. So I had to sit down and write out, starting at Plato and going all the way to Derrida, each philosopher in the chain and what they believed, what they taught or what they, what they said, and how they pushed back against the person who was before them. So it wasn't just what they believed, but how they interacted with the other philosophies in their time and before their time. Um, that was basically my written comps. And then my oral comps was defending that historical perspective of a history of philosophy and ideas. So he just took the chance on me to teach me the philosophical end of it. And I will tell you, it was not easy. Uh, languages are extremely hard for me, which is crazy because I know several programming languages, but human languages are very difficult for me. I struggled through Greek. I know just enough German to use Google Translate as my helper <laughs> and figure out like how to read German articles. Right. So, I mean, seriously, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I know enough German that I can take Google yeah. Translate's ideas and actually clean them up and make it a usable English text. Right, right. But because, of course, translation programs just don't do that perfect of a job, particularly when you're dealing with philosophy or theology, because there's technical terms in there that the translation program. Oh, yeah, there's nuances. That, that yeah, it does. It just doesn't know what to do sure. with. So um, could I sit down and read German straight up? Probably not. If you hand me a German menu, I could probably find my way around it. <laughs> and okay. you know, I can find my way around Hebrew, Greek and German at this point. Sure. But I'm just really not good at human languages like this. And so that was a real struggle. Um, shifting my mental map to understanding the ways and thoughts of f philosophical thinking, particularly around epistemology and understanding things like the virtue ethic in depth and understanding epistemology and understanding Gettier problems and, and uh, the various issues with under knowing the truth and justified true belief and stuff were extremely difficult for me. As the process goes, I ended up reading about almost 200 books over a five-year period to get through the PhD program. I wrote eight or 10, 20-page papers, plus um, just a lot of other stuff that I had to write. I had to write arguments and outlines of books and um, all sorts of other things like that. And then the dissertation itself, which was 100 or 250 pages or something like that on the topic at hand, which is the intersection of culture and technology. Interesting that you bring up the fact that you had these challenges as far as the linguistics or just having an intuitive path. Um, it sounds like, you know, you were given some obstacles and some roadblocks. When you think about how you overcame those, those roadblocks and those challenges, what was going through your, your mind at the time? And, and how did you end up overcoming them? Well, there were multiple times when I almost quit, to be honest with you, primarily over the languages issues. But I just really believed that there was a reason for me to do this. I'm not, I'm not an inner light type person. I mean, I, I do believe that 
you know, whatever as a Christian, but I, I'm not an inner light type person. I don't rely on myself internally to do things. I am much more outward focused, uh, much more focused on what other people expect of me and what other people see in me or believe in me. And I reflect what people believe in me a lot of times. And so a lot of times overcoming those things was primarily sitting down with people who were working with me through the program and other people in my cohort and saying, all right, am I really doing the right thing here? What am I doing wrong? How am I messing this up? And just the encouragement from them feeding back into my life continued to push me through it. And the belief that this is an important topic that is not being fully addressed in the modern world kind of drove me along as well. And I'd be honest, I mean, partly too, I'm an engineer, so part of it's just curiosity. It's like, I just want to know how things work. So once you get me into trying to learn philosophy, then I really want to understand it. Um, so that's kind of part of it as well. Just curiosity drug me along. Okay, awesome. Looks like we're getting close to the end of our episode today. Russ, for the sake of the industry and everybody involved in tech, I hope that the work that you've done um, with this dissertation and all of the, the research you've done goes a long way. I think it's, it's very much needed. And I think it could trickle down into other lines of work as well. Uh, I think social media obviously has is, is impacted everybody. So just I'd like to thank you for joining, Russ. It's, it's been great. Hope we can have you on, back on the show again. Um, can we let people know how they can follow you and keep up with your adventures and what you're doing these days? Yeah, sure. Um, the easiest thing to do is to follow me at rule11.tech, which is my blog. Uh, I publish The Hedge and The History of Networking there. And I also, I mean, of course, those things are available. The podcasts are all available on iTunes and, and yada, yada, yada. But if you want a good starting point, you can follow me at, at rule11.tech. And as I move more into the realm of thinking about privacy and stuff like that, I intend to at least point post cross pointers there to the other work that I'm doing. So you can pretty much find anything you want to about what I'm working on at that blog. Awesome. So the two podcasts are The History of Networking and The Hedge, and uh, you are the host of both of those. Yes. Yes. Good stuff. So we'll have show uh, links in the show notes for everybody, and you can keep track of Russ and see what he's up to these days. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening in. Hope you can join us next time. Russ, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us on The Art of Conviction. You can visit our website at anchor.fm slash artofconviction, where you can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Be sure to check the show notes for more information about our guests and us, your hosts, Shazad Mirza and Cyrus Hero. While you're at it, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Art of Conviction is produced by Blueprint Sound.